0: Acts chapter 8, before we get into our study tonight, just uh, a message for those of you who are wanting to be a part of the homeless ministry this coming Saturday, Uh, because of the church that this is at, they have requested this particular Saturday uh, to accommodate them a change in time and so normally the group from our church meets at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning at the Paradise Bakery at Gilbert and Germain. This Saturday, you need to be there at 11.30 to meet instead of 9. And we realize that might affect some of you being able to, to join the group this Saturday, but we need to get the word out. So if you know of somebody who's planning on being a part of the homeless ministry this Saturday, give them a call, email them, text them, let them know. Instead of 9 a.m. this Saturday, they'll be meeting at eleven thirty. And if you have any questions, Marsha's here tonight. Please talk to Marsha about that. A couple things that God reminded me of as, as I was going through Acts chapter 8. God doesn't want us to be stagnant or to become stagnant. Just as stagnant water is not as healthy, if you will, and refreshing as that which continues to flow, God wants our lives as Christians to be a constant flow. Never getting to a point where we stagnate, if you will. In order to do that, then, what needs to happen or how it needs to look is there has to always be something flowing in to our lives. And in order to be balanced and healthy, there needs to be that which flows out of us to others. It's one of the reasons why I have always been drawn to the concept of an oasis. Because an oasis is something that is continually uh, fed by underground springs. There's a constant flow there to the water to keep it refreshing to those who come to that place. And we need to, instead of allowing our spiritual lives to stagnate, if you will, we need to remind ourselves that God wants to bring that flow to us as I think I've shared this before, many times, you know, Christians used to use the concept of, say, a glass, and God, I want to bring my empty vessel or glass to you, and I want you to fill it up. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that illustration or concept, but I think the way God has shown me over the years is that cut the bottom out of the glass, turn the glass sideways, and let that water just continually flow into the glass in one side and flow right out in the other side. To me, that's a more biblical way of looking at how God wants our lives to be. And I share that up front because what God is doing in Acts chapter 8 is He's stretching His people a little bit. God won't always constantly stretch us there will be times where he will allow us to sort of relax if you will and 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 rest in the place we are but there's also going to come times where for our own spiritual good God is going to stretch us out of where we are out of our comfort zone a little bit not to the extreme but just nudge us a little bit And we see that happening here in Acts chapter 8 because back when Jesus was talking to his followers, he even told them, look, I I want you to take this message to the world. And then in the beginning of this book, Acts chapter 1, Luke is recounting the instructions of Jesus to his followers and said, I want you to go into all the world, but I want you to start in Jerusalem, then go to Samaria, then go to other parts, and just keep on going out. Take the message out. Get the message out further and further. Well, what happened was after Jesus ascended and went back to heaven and after the church started to go through you know, the pressures and persecutions from outside and the turmoil from within and all the things that you know, they've been dealing with, which we've seen, they sort of got comfortable, if you will, in huddling together. And not continuing to move out and take the message of Jesus further and further out. So what God did here is, obviously he was not behind the murder of Stephen. But just as we learn in Romans chapter 8 about how God can take even awful, tragic, painful things and somehow bring something profitable, beneficial, and good out of it, that's exactly what God here, here did through the stoning of Stephen. Stephen. Because the Bible basically says because of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution it came that the church then was forced to sort of get out of its comfort zone there in Jerusalem and begin to follow in obedience what God had always wanted them to do. You see. The other thing that I see here as we just sort of take a big overview of chapter 8 is this. The other thing I think you'll find here is that again, even though God is saving at this point thousands of people, multitudes are coming to Christ, and we can all get caught up in, in a sense, the big crowds and the big masses of people, that Acts chapter 8 is all about individual. And it's all about one-on-one contact between individuals. Some negative, some positive. But it's all about the individual. And it again reminds us, That, yeah, certainly God wants to reach the masses, but most of the time, God's going to reach the masses through the one-on-ones of our life. Through that one-on-one contact. Through God leading us to that one. Or someone from God being led to us to encourage, to support, to refresh us. Yes, we have our corporate times. But... Most ministry takes place out there in that one-on-one contact either we have with each other as brothers or sisters in Christ or that we have maybe with those who don't know Christ. And we find that happening here. Notice beginning then in chapter 8, Saul agreed completely with killing him. Speaking of Stephen, it meant that actually Saul was there applauding We're doing the right thing by murdering Stephen. And what I want you to see in these first few verses of Acts chapter 8 is I want you to see how Saul, in a sense, is juxtaposed to Stephen. And how God was going to use Stephen. And who Stephen was. And even how Stephen died. And the fact that Saul was a witness of that, he was going to use that in Saul's life, not only to bring Saul eventually to Christ here, but actually use this in Saul's life throughout his own ministry in life. Notice it says, Now on the next day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was trying to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. couple of things. First, I want us to go back and remind ourselves of what the church means. And I mean the word church. Why that's important is because, again, the church is being persecuted. The normal human reaction is, if, if I'm being persecuted and, and I'm being harassed and I'm being troubled, I'm going to be that turtle that sort of goes back into its shell and to try to prevent that from happening. And yet, in the very word church, there is the concept that what it means is God has always wanted to call us out. That's literally what it means. Ecclesia, the called out ones. In other words, God doesn't want his people to remain in their private residences, is what the word ecclesia means. He wants us as his people to leave our private residences and to come out in public to corporately worship him as God. That's what the word church means. And therefore, by the very understanding of the meaning of the word church, again, counterintuitive, but God, all the while, while the church and why Christians are being persecuted because they're coming out in public willing to testify of their faith, the more they're being persecuted. And yet God didn't want to change what the church was. In fact, what he's showing here is in spite of all the opposition, in spite of all the challenges, in spite of all the persecution, the message of Christ continues to grow. The message continues to spread. People's lives continue to change. And, and the church gets stronger in spite of the fact of all this persecution. The other thing I want to mention is this. The word destroy in verse 3 that Paul was trying to do literally means to demoralize or to discourage. Interesting way of looking at how to destroy something. But it's an interesting concept and a reminder to us as Christians that that's actually a lot of how the enemy works or wants to work in our lives. In order to destroy, if you will, our witness, our service, our ministry, our effectiveness for Christ, most of the time, our enemy will try to discourage or demoralize us. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. Because by throwing all these Christians into prison, it was like, gee whiz, God... You're telling us to get out there and to be the called out ones and to come out and be public about our faith and our witness. And yet the more we, if we would hide, then Saul couldn't get us. But when we come out in public, he knows exactly where we are. But God was trying to teach his people again and stretch them and say, you got to trust me. I'm bigger than this. I'm bigger than Saul. I'm bigger than any persecution. Don't allow the enemy to demoralize or discourage you in spite of what you're going through. Continue to be obedient to me even during the times of persecution. And get out there and go public with Jesus. So you'll notice that again, Saul and Stephen sort of are Playing off of each other, it was very significant to Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to mention the fact that out of all the people that were there around the time of Stephen's sermon and message and Stephen's stoning, that it happened to be Saul. And I believe that Saul was forever impacted and influenced by this young man, Stephen, and by his death and how he died and the fact that he was willing to die. For believing in the resurrected Jesus. Now one other point before we move on. Why that should be encouraging to us. Is that. God wants us to live by faith. And he wants us to serve by faith. And he wants us to minister by faith. And there will be many times in our Christian lives where we won't even realize the impact or influence we had on another human being until we get to heaven. I've shared that before. And this is certainly true. Stephen was dead. He was already with Jesus in heaven and yet God was going to use his life and his death to greatly influence this guy Saul for the rest of his life in ministry. And how many people have been affected by Paul's ministry? And I think that Stephen is going to be rewarded by God for actually being a part of Saul's or Paul's ministry, if you will you and I don't always know the influence and impact we have on other people. Sometimes they never tell us. Sometimes we don't even know it. And that's why we just have to be the people of God that God calls us to be and let God use us. And going back to even Sunday, taking that light and last Tuesday, taking that light and setting it on a hill like a city. So in these first three verses... If I had to summarize as far as just maybe one word two that came to my mind, it would be the word courage. Just like at the beginning of the book of Joshua where God told his people, listen, in order to take new ground spiritually, you've got to be strong and courageous. And that's what God was telling his people here. In spite of the persecution, in spite of the fact you just saw one of your leaders murdered and stoned to death, I want you to take the gospel and continue to proclaim my name to the nations and be courageous and be strong in me so you notice verse 4 now those who had been forced to scatter went around proclaiming the good news of the word we read that but we don't they're doing this on the heels of one of their own who did this being murdered so again you can see the courage and the faith there to just trust God okay God I'm going to continue to live my life the way you want and just place my life in your hands. But now, we're going to transition to this next section. And if I had to use a word to describe this section, I would use the word caution. And the reason is for this. We're going to be introduced here to a man named Simon in this passage of Scripture. Simon, I believe if you study this, it is clear that he is a false believer. I do not believe that this man ever really, truly accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Yet, he's part of the church. And what we are reminded of here is this. Not everybody who is part of the church is really part of the church. (laughs) Did you understand that? Not everybody who is part of the church is really part of the church. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, look, it's not up to you as my people to separate the sheep from the goats. I will do that when the kingdom comes. So in other words, Jesus even says, look, there's going to be sheep and goats sort of mingled together. And I don't want you to focus on trying to separate it all out. I'm the only one that has the ability to truly look into a person's heart and know where they are spiritually. And even though, as Jesus taught his followers, yes, you can know by their fruits to a point, but there comes a point where people will fool us. And I think what this section is reminding us of, especially in the early days of the church and even today, is just to be cautious in our relationships, even with those who profess or confess themselves as Christians. Because not everyone who is part of the church is part of the church. And we especially then have to be careful of who we give any kind of leadership or influential positions in the church to, especially if they're not really part of the church. There's that danger there. Which is why in the first part of this chapter, certainly I see a call to courage, but in this section I see a call to caution. And it's okay to be cautious with people, as we're going to see here in just a moment. So, verse 5, let's pick it up. We're just going to go down through this pretty quickly. Philip went down to the main city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds were paying attention with one mind to what Philip said, they were turning their minds to Philip as they heard and saw the miraculous signs he was performing. Unclean spirits crying with loud shrieks were coming out of many who were possessed and many paralyzed and lame people were healed. So there was great joy in that city through the what God was doing through Philip. Now in that city was a man named Simon who had been practicing magic and amazing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. By the way, you always should have a red flag or a warning sign go up whenever you're around somebody who's claiming to be great. That's, you know. All the people from the Jews to the greatest, from the least to the greatest, excuse me, paid close attention to him, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And notice something, too. They were paying attention to Philip, but they had been paying attention to Simon. And now the attention that they were had been giving to Simon, they were giving to Philip and to the message that Philip was bringing. And they paid close attention, verse 11, to him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they received or believed Philip's message, as he was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they began to be baptized, both men and women. Even Simon believed. And this is where many people say, well, look, the Bible says Simon believed. You have to understand, the Bible sometimes is just using, uh, is just being a commentary on what is the predominant sort of belief at the time. Even Simon himself believed, and after that he was baptized. And I believe what that's saying too is Philip was fooled because I don't think Philip would have baptized somebody that he didn't really believe was a Christian. But what you're going to see here in just a moment is that the language that Peter uses is language that is never used, never used in the Bible in connection with a Christian. And I think Peter makes it clear that through the discernment of the Holy Spirit that this man Simon outwardly was professing to be a believer. And if somebody asked him, are you a Christian? He would probably have said, yes, I believe, and I've been baptized. But Peter is going to expose, if you will, his false belief here in just a moment. So that's what the Bible goes on to say. Notice it says that after he was baptized, he stayed close to Philip constantly. And when he saw the signs and great miracles that were occurring, he was amazed. The one who had amazed others was now amazed. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. These two went down and prayed for them so that they would receive the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." So then Peter and John placed their hands on the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to take a lot of time tonight to go into this. Again, remember, Acts is a transition book. It is transitioning us from the Old Testament economy to the New Testament economy. Today, when a person accepts Jesus Christ, you and I don't need somebody to come lay hands on us to receive the Holy Spirit. So why then, in this particular period of time, did God allow these apostles to be present and lay their hands on people so that there was, you know, sort of an outward symbolic thing of receiving the Holy Spirit? I think it was for several reasons. One, it was to to unify the body of Christ, which was so important to God, that it wasn't Jewish believers and a Jewish church over here, and Gentile believers and a Gentile church over here, that God wanted His people, if they were truly His people, to come together as one body in Christ at this point. And so, for the Jewish apostles, if you will, the leaders of the church, to be present, and in a sense to confirm or authenticate that these Gentiles were truly saved and receiving the Holy Spirit, I think was a, a big deal. And it was a way to unify and galvanize the church at this particular time. So now, notice, I got to get to this. Verse 18. Now, Simon, when he saw this, that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, offered them money, saying, Give me this power or authority too, so that everyone I place my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice, he wasn't asking for the Holy Spirit. He was asking for the authority that the apostles had been given by Christ to lay their hands on people and basically confer the Holy Spirit on them. That's what he wanted. He wanted position. He wanted power. He wanted authority. He didn't just want the Holy Spirit for himself. He wanted to be able to be in the position of the apostles of Jesus Christ. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could acquire God's gift with money. First of all, the word perish is never used in connection with a Christian. In fact, Jesus even said, you believe in me, you shall never perish. And I hope this is not offensive to anyone here tonight or anyone who listens to this on podcast. And this is not a paraphrase. I'm as close to the original language that Peter used as you can get, But basically what Peter said to Simon is to hell with you and your money. Not language that's ever used in connection with a a fellow believer, if you will. Then he says, you have no share or part in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Now again, How did Peter know this? I think God was giving him discernment through the Holy Spirit. That, wait a minute, Peter, we need to stop here for a moment, because here's a guy who is part of the church, but he's really not part of the church. Therefore, notice what Peter says in verse 22, repent. Of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that He may perhaps forgive you for the intent of your heart. For I see that you are bitterly envious and in bondage to sin. The words that Peter uses here in verse 23 is that Simon was infected to the core with bitterness and envy, and he was tied up in sin. This does not describe a Christian who's been freed from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ at all. In fact, notice even Simon's reply. Simon doesn't say, okay, I'll pray to God. He doesn't even have the wherewithal or the confidence to even pray to God himself. He asked Peter to somehow pray to the Lord for him so that nothing of what he said may happen to him. Now, we don't know whatever happened to Simon. At, at this point, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit just sort of left it there. Left to our imagination of what's happening here. What, what did, did Simon ever get things right or whatever? But the reason I think this is so important here, and for us, is simply, again, as a reminder. Be cautious. Not everyone in our lifetime who claims to be a Christian is going to be a Christian, folks. Not everyone who confesses Christ is really saved. Not everyone who joins a church and is part of a church and is part of a you know and is baptized and comes to church regularly and is part of that doesn't mean they're a Christian. They in a sense can be somewhat like Simon in that they can have all the externals, but it's the heart that matters. And so we see an example of that here. So then the Bible says, after Peter and John had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem proclaiming the good news to many Samaritan villages as they went. Then we come to the last one. The one I want to spend the last ten minutes on. And so you'll notice here too, again, individuals. Stephen's influence on Saul. Then you have Philip's influence on Simon. Then you have Simon and Peter, and this interaction, even though it was negative. And now we come to a a high point, if you will, a more positive point. And that is now Philip being led by God to go and witness and bring about the salvation of this Ethiopian. And if I had to then use a word to describe this last part of Acts chapter 8, I would use the word compliant. Philip was absolutely surrendered, submissive, compliant to the will of God and to the leading of God in his life. And that's what God looks for. He looks for his people to be courageous. He looks for his people to be cautious at times. And he looks for his people to be compliant to him. Philip had to be a Gumby. He had to be flexible. God, here I am. Use me. And so notice what happens. Then an angel of the Lord says to Philip, get up and go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then it says, this is a desert road. And I think the reason why that's significant is because it means it was a solitary, lonely, uninhabited road. There are times where God is going to call His people to be, you know, part of the crowd. And there's times where He's going to ask us to walk a very solitary, lonely, uninhabited road all our own. Not that we're ever alone, because He is with us. But sometimes that's what God asks of us. So Philip was, he, he went. Because Philip, as a Christian, was prepared that God, whatever you say, I'm ready. I'm prepared to go wherever you want. I, I'm not locked in to, it's got to be this. Wherever you lead me, God, just use me. That was Philip. And he's a great example to us. So he got up and went. And there he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace's, who was a queen of the Ethiopian's who was in charge of all her treasury. Here's an influential guy in another country. Talk about now the gospel and the good news of Christ going to spread. It's going to go from this Ethiopian, obviously, back to Ethiopia, and not just to anywhere in Ethiopia. It's going to the palace in Ethiopia. One man, Philip, used by God. And look at what happened. One person. One conversation. That's all sometimes it takes. And that's exactly what we see here. So notice, this Ethiopian had come to Jerusalem to worship. He he recognized that there was a supreme being, if you will. And he was willing, even as an official, to acknowledge that there was someone greater than him. But obviously he was searching, and he hadn't found what he was looking for yet in Jerusalem. Isn't that significant? And so he was returning home, sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. Well, it's always good for people who are seeking to be reading the Word of God. Nothing wrong with that. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Glue yourself together. Fasten yourself firmly, is what the word means, join So Philip ran up to it, which I don't think was probably the easiest thing to do, can I say? I don't think the chariot was just going slow. I think it was going at a pretty good pace. And he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked him, "'Do you understand, do you perceive, do you comprehend what you're reading?' Going back to what we've been saying even on Sundays the last couple weeks, it does no good to read the Word of God if we're not comprehending and understanding it. We can read it all day long unless the Spirit of God is teaching us so that we can grasp it and comprehend it. It's not doing us any good. And he even recognized this. So the man replied, "How in the world can I, unless someone guides me, and says, unless someone leads or teaches me? What a great attitude from this man! He was teachable. He was willing, even as a, as a, as a government official, to recognize. Look, I'm, I'm out of my league here. I, I'm searching for God. I, I want to know who the true God is, and I, I believe I'm reading, you know, His sacred scriptures, but I, I don't get it." Can you help? And isn't it great to have people in our lives like a Philip that God can send into our lives and God may want to use you as a Philip to be sent into other people's lives to guide them, to lead them, to be a teacher to them, to help them grasp, comprehend, and understand the Scriptures of God. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. A couple things here real quick. Notice that Philip didn't do any of this on his own. He didn't try to ram the gospel down this guy. So that that Ethiopian, he needs Jesus. I'm going to... No. Two things I want you to note here. He, Philip, was following the leading of the Spirit to this man. And secondly, Philip was invited by this man to come up and talk to him about the Scriptures. See, to me, that's what we need to be sensitive and looking for in seizing opportunities. Who is the Spirit of God leading us to? And then are we being invited further in by someone who is truly interested? Or are we trying to knock down a door that has been put up? Which is why many Christians then end up actually turning people off to God and off to the Gospel because they've over the years tried to ram it down someone's throat who wasn't ready yet and been, had been prepared by the Holy Spirit of God to be ready like this man was. It's just a good, to me, lesson in evangelism and in sharing our faith. Now the passage of Scripture the man was reading was this, he was led like a sheep to slaughter... Like a lamb before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, justice was taken from him. Who can describe his posterity? For his life was taken away from the earth. And I don't think it was any accident that this guy from Ethiopia was reading this passage of Scripture. I think we see here the providence of God in all this. Which again shows us, as I've shared with people before... If someone truly has a heart to know God, there's never an instance in the Word of God anywhere where someone who truly wanted to know God didn't find out more about God. That God made sure that there was someone there to give them more light if they were responding to the light they already had. That's always the case in the Word of God. That's why I tell people, you don't have to worry about someone going to hell and ending up in a Christless eternity because they really wanted to know God, but, you know, it just the, the circumstances just didn't, you know, land right to where they ever got a chance. That will never happen. Again, God alone knows people's hearts. And God knows after all even the internal stuff that he's been trying to reach them for years maybe. Are they open or not? And all God looks for is just a little opening. Is is there any interest? Is there any opening at all to the truth? And my God is the type of God that if he sees any opening at all, he's going to make sure they get the truth. Exactly what we see here. Sending Philip down this deserted road and just happened to run into this chariot and the guy in the chariot who needs Christ just happens to be reading the great prophet Isaiah. Oh, and it just happened to be Isaiah 53 talking about the Messiah. All coincidence? No way. All the work and hand of God in all of it. Then the eunuch said to Philip, Please tell me. The word please means to desire, to long for. This man had a longing to understand who is the prophet saying this about himself or someone else? So Philip started speaking and beginning with this scripture, proclaim the good news about Jesus to him. Did you notice how many times just in Acts chapter eight, it says Philip was going about proclaiming the good news of Jesus to people. The word proclaim means to be a herald. It's a word where we, in the English we get the word publish from. He was always going around publishing Jesus He was like the town crier, the herald that would just... Anybody that's interested, I want to tell you about Jesus. That's Philip. That was his life. That wasn't just something that he did in his local church that he sort of signed up for ministry. That was who he was. He didn't need a program or some ministry to tell him to do this. He just did it. Because he loved Jesus and he wanted to share Jesus with others. Now as they were going along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's water what is to stop me or hinder or prevent me from being baptized? And you'll notice something that I share with people in the New Testament you always have this very clear pattern people accepted Christ and they were baptized. Accepted Christ, baptized, and then added to the church. Saved, baptized, added to the church. Saved, baptized, added to the church. That's the way it was. That's what you see here. As soon as he knew the Lord, he wanted to be baptized. He wanted to be publicly identified with Jesus. And so when they came up out of the water, verse 39, the Spirit of the Lord then snatched Philip away. I think this was a supernatural thing. One second, Philip is there baptizing this guy, and the next minute, the Spirit just, now, Philip, you're over here. Again, Philip was just like, wherever, God, wherever you want me. One second I'm here, okay, you want me over there? Okay, whatever. And the Bible says a eunuch did not see him anymore, but he did did go on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, found himself at and As he passed through the area, oh, guess what he was doing? Yeah, Philip. He was just proclaiming the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. A compliant young man, who just went around telling other people about Jesus. And again, note this as we close tonight. One-on-one. One-on-one. Yes, there will be ministry at times in group settings. I mean, obviously, Tuesday night, Sunday morning, we come together as a group. Hopefully God works, ministers, teaches, all that, encourages. But God doesn't want it just to be defined by that. That's why God tells us then, yes, come together, rally around each other. You know, come together to be encouraged and, and uplifted and refreshed and 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 to grow. But then get out there individually. Into all your different neighborhoods and places of business and where you work and where you go to school, whatever, and let your then individual light shine. And seize those opportunities where the Spirit of God and where maybe you may even be invited by someone to be a part of their life. And whether it's another Christian to encourage and support and help and guide and teach, or maybe it's like Philip here, maybe it's someone who doesn't know Christ, but they're really interested. And you, through the Spirit's leading and discernment, can see that they're interested and that there's an open door there. And you, like Philip, are just going to start talking to them about Jesus when you get the opportunity. One-on-one. is so very powerful. You will never know the impact and influence of your life until you get to heaven totally because not only are there times just like with Saul and Stephen where it's just it's not even possible for that person to maybe share with you how they've you've influenced their life but let's face it as human beings even as Christians a lot of times we just, don't, we just don't either make the effort or take the time to tell others who have blessed us that they have blessed us. <laughs> so sometimes they don't even know. Don't be discouraged. Don't be demoralized. Let's just live and serve by faith and let God use our lives to touch other people's lives one life at a time. One life at a time. Let's pray. God, thank You once again for all that was going on in the early days of the church and of Your people in the book of Acts. Lord, so many exciting things, but yet, Lord, we also know so many challenges as well, as will be true in our church life. But God, one thing certainly stood out in this passage. And that was that much of what the interaction that was taking place here wasn't large groups impacting other large groups. It was one person impacting or influencing either negatively or positively other people. So God, encourage us with this. Help us to see, God, that you want to bring sometimes just one individual into our life to encourage and support and and refresh and guide us at times and and sometimes god you want to use us to do that for others help us lord to be courageous help us to be cautious help us to be compliant we pray in jesus name amen hey folks again before you leave don't forget saturday Normally, the homeless ministry meets at 9 at the Paradise Bakery at Gilbert and Germain. This week or this month, 1130. If you have any questions, please see Marsha. Thanks, guys. We'll see you on Sunday.